Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. I'm your host, Cassie Stossel. On today's episode, we're talking about ADHD and women. Our guests are Sari Solden and Dr. Michelle Frank, authors of A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD. Sari Solden is a psychotherapist who specializes in working with women and men with ADHD and mental health professionals who want to help them. She has been counseling adults, consulting with professionals, supporting neurodiverse women mental health professionals, writing and speaking about this subject around the world for 35 years. In addition to A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD, her other two books, Women with Attention Deficit Disorder and Journeys Through Adulthood, are worldwide bestsellers in the field. Her areas of specialization include women's issues, inattentive ADHD, and the emotional consequences and healing process for adults who grew up with undiagnosed ADHD. She is a prominent keynote speaker on the subjects nationally and internationally. Dr. Michelle Frank has over 10 years of experience specializing in ADHD and is committed to continuing to support and advocate for individuals and couples impacted by ADHD in the therapeutic space and on a broader communal level. Dr. Frank serves as clinical director for Enrich Relationship Center of Colorado, where she sees individuals and couples impacted by ADHD. During the course of her clinical experience with individuals with ADHD, Dr. Frank saw a compelling need for effective relationship therapy in the community and completed training in Gottman Method Relationship Therapy, which is a research-based approach to couples and relationship work to better serve individuals, couples, and families in the ADHD community. Formerly the Vice President of ADAA, a nonprofit serving adults with ADHD, Dr. Frank now serves on their medical advisory board and is a well-regarded resource, speaker, consultant, educator, and advocate for ADHD and neurodiversity. Dr. Frank is the co-author of A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD, written in collaboration with Sari Solden, her mentor, colleague, and dear friend. She is a graduate of the Chicago School of Professional Psychology and Marquette University. Hailing from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, she now resides in sunny Denver, Colorado with her husband, toddler, two rambunctious dogs, and a pretty nice garden. Hi, Sari and Michelle. Thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be here, Cassie. Thank you. So I thought we could start off by just talking about the process to which you came to write this book. Yeah, it was a wild experience. <laughs> when Michelle came up to Ann Arbor to join me in my practice, and I think it was 2014. And so we had a few years of working together, which was really exciting because there aren't that many people who do therapy with women with ADHD. So Michelle and I were just seeing the same things and sharing experiences with each other constantly. You know, the shared experiences, every client, every woman coming in, wanting to be fixed, wanting to get over who she was, you know, wanting to get more tips, tools, and strategies. And we as therapists saw what we were doing was trying to guide them into a much more in-depth journey toward actually themselves. And we had so much in common, um, as Michelle, you know, was relating this morning, it was started out almost like a funny thing. You know, how about the radical idea that instead of trying to change who you are and fix yourself, you could actually learn to be yourself. And that's where the name came from. Yeah, it was actually like almost in jest, this idea, like it's such a radical idea, you know, that that someone can be who they are in the world uh, instead of try to parcel themselves out or, or fit themselves into a particular box or change who they are. And, uh, then we realized, you know, maybe that was a message that really did need to be stated very directly. Like, and, and maybe that was radical to say that 
being someone who's neurodivergent, it's also okay to be yourself and that it's not a bad thing to be neurodivergent, that it comes with challenges, but that the other piece of that is uh, really being someone with ADHD and, and doing life well with ADHD actually doesn't look like just trying to be neurotypical, right? And trying to be more neurotypical or less ADHD, but rather the trick to that is leaning into who you really are. And that felt like a radical thing to say. It's, you know, I think it's gaining some traction, this idea, but um, it's a message we found people really need to hear pretty directly. The interesting thing about that was also what we did radically different. What this is not a book just primarily about how to, you know, help your ADHD. Actually, the ADHD was sort of in the background. We wanted to place a woman front and center in this book, who she is, how she can claim more of her life and lead a fulfilling, meaningful life, even though she has challenges. So the ADHD is in the background. It's it's not, you know, the front and center thing that's that hits you when you start the book. Yeah, I was just going to say that is a really radical concept, but really powerful of like, you don't need to change this about yourself. But like, how do you work with these strengths that you have to work through your life? And so I'm really glad you guys talked about that, because I think that's really powerful. And since ADHD does present differently in women, can you talk about historically why girls and women haven't been diagnosed? Yeah, I mean, I was there at the beginning of the late 80s, early 90s, when I saw at that point that, you know, it was a radical idea when a book came out that said that um, adults sometimes, you know, we always thought that was just hyperactive little boys. And then we kept researching those hyper little boys. And then we thought that adults outgrew it. And in the early 90s, we realized, no, maybe people lost their hyperactivity, but they still struggled and it looked differently. Shortly after that, we understood that there was a thing called ADHD, ADD without hyperactivity at that time. And then we understood that you never had to have hyperactivity to have ADHD. And that's when we started to recognize women. All the articles of that time when I was working said, and women have it too, but it's different. So there wasn't any real focus on it. When I wrote my book, it came out in 95 originally, um, it was about the tremendous effects, not just of struggling with ADHD, but the shame that I saw so much differently in the women and men who have the same difficulties. So women and girls get diagnosed much later for several of these reasons, because they never fit the stereotype. Often the girls, women are not hyperactive necessarily, uh, so that people pass on that. Often, in addition, women are masking and little girls are masking by people-pleasing, internalizing their anxiety instead of acting it out, maybe being very well compensated and perfectionistic. They might have a lot of support, structure, high IQs. In addition, the hormones, you know, often change in girls and delay this diagnosis. At some point, they hit a wall when they are depressed and anxious, and then whoever's diagnosing them can only see that. And again, they're not able to see what the effect of living undiagnosed with these kind of struggles that aren't understood. Um, so, and there's a lot of myths about that also delay the diagnosis that you can't be educated, you can't have achieved. Um, and then coupled with the lack of training of practitioners so that nobody else is getting diagnosed. Um, eventually we learned to see this as a, instead of the traditional triad, we saw that executive function is a real 
important way to understand the struggle. So all the combination of compensating, sometimes self-medicating, just puts off the diagnosis until in adulthood, it's very hard to diagnose unless you understand what you're looking for. I'll add to that. I mean, even if you look at the rating skills and how rating skills are developed and normed, we've learned to ask questions about white hyperactive school-age boys. So we need to move into a phase of researching the diagnostic piece of it more in terms of why do we ask the questions we ask? And what we know is like, if you look at several widely used rating scales that take a look at, you know, the frequency of behaviors or symptoms of ADHD, a lot of them don't have gender specific or sex, say sex specific norms, right? They have mixed norms, which, um, you know, there's an argument to be made that's, that's a positive and there's an argument to be made that that could be detrimental, my big question around it is, why do we ask the questions we ask? And if we look back historically, it's because we've always asked them because we've always studied white boys, white men. And so our questions need to begin to change because that's the starting point, right, for, for the diagnostic picture. A lot of what we know is doesn't incorporate a, a different perspective, um, the feminine perspective or a non-binary perspective. How do you account for that piece um, in people? So there's a lot we still don't know, and there's a lot that needs to change there. The other thing is it depends, too, if you look at clinical versus uh, population samples. So if you just, like, scan people in the community and you take a sample there, right, you do find higher rates of inattentive presentation. If you take samples from clinics, what I think is interesting is uh, you see higher rates of combined presentation. So if you take a look at people who are in treatment for ADHD, whether that's medication or therapy, and, and you're, you're sampling that group, uh, what we find is that in order to be in treatment, if, if females have to have a higher level of impairment and dysfunction. So they are much more likely to slip under the radar and sort of do that thing that you know, we're kind of all culturally inquired, uh, encouraged to do, which is push through and try harder. And so in order for them to break through to get the diagnosis, to be referred for diagnosis and treatment, they've got to be a lot worse off and they've got to be displaying more of these externalizing behaviors. Because in mental health in general, when we look at patterns of male versus female characteristics, we know that boys and men externalize more, right? It's more hyperactivity, more behavioral, and women, it tends to be more of an internaliz internalization. So even hyperactivity, well, how are we measuring that? And girls and women with ADHD who do have combined type or hyperactive traits will say it, it's more of a, a restless mind or feeling in my body, but I've learned how to mask that for a really long time. So Again, back to this idea of asking the right questions being an important piece of pivoting the narrative uh, is where we need to go. Yeah, having practitioner understand a much more in-depth, nuanced way of interviewing and really understanding what, how these things show up in a woman's life, not just going through a checklist and comparing it to, you know, how, you know, little white boys or, or men or, or other kind of people have, you know, it's just the struggle and the level of impairment and the difficulty, really understanding the inner experience is something that we're not trained to do that much. Yeah. The, the context of it. Is there, are there other common diagnoses that women will get before they get to this ADHD? Like what, you know, you mentioned that it has to be more severe. What are clinicians commonly misdiagnosing them with? 
depression, anxiety. Uh, it, before this, though, before the early 90s, it was always borderline or bipolar. It was always something even more severe. But now, and it's true that often you live like this for many years, you will have depression, anxiety, but you have to, the hard part of a diagnosis is understanding the whole pattern of, was this primary? Is this in addition to? Is this, you know, actually ADHD and not those inattentive ADHD looks a lot like depression. So it's it's hard to tell. Um, we're even afraid sometimes to send for neuropsychological testing because it's all a matter of interpretation. Of course, somebody can be seen as depressed or having these difficulties, but again, that really deep understanding is what separates out. The diagnostic picture is hard when someone's depressed and anxious and, and have struggled your whole life with this. Definitely. And you mentioned the ways that women might mask their ADHD. Can you talk about some of the specifics of how ADHD does present for women? In terms of like presentation versus masking, I think that's kind of two two separate questions in my mind. Sure. Because mm-hmm. how it how it feels, how it presents is um, different from the way you know what people do to mask it. And so, what it tends to look like is uh, a lot of the executive functioning challenges when it comes to trouble with activation, getting going, trouble with working memory you know, holding things in your mind, using them to solve a problem and letting them go, remembering to remember, right? Prospective memory, organization, not just of stuff, but also of behavior over time, emotional regulation. It's really about self-regulation, ADHD is in a lot of ways. And so that's true for women as it is for men and non-binary folks. I would say with women, what we see is a lot of co-occurring challenges with self-talk, learned helplessness, depression, anxiety. There's some really high risks involved in in ADHD. And there's a study um, that came out in 2012 that was a real game changer and a real wake-up call from um, Hinshaw's Berkeley lab about the drastically increased rates of self-harm and suicide among teen girls with ADHD. So we don't mean to minimize it all when we talk from this, like, idea of becoming more of yourself. We don't mean to minimize at all the challenges inherent in how ADHD shows up for women. It's just that we know that uh, trying to be someone else in the world isn't a very good way to go about feeling good about yourself and shifting those patterns of depression and anxiety. But a lot of the compensation that women do involves hiding, isolating, intense perfectionism, uh, a lot of mental rehearsal and worrying Tons and tons of lists and time spent trying to perfect things behind the scenes so no one finds out. Staying late at work, becoming really good friends with the after-hours after staff. Never really taking time for self because of all of the things that remain undone. And a lot of hiding. A lot of hiding. Yeah, I find that that is the chief compensation that people use is hiding. And so that's another reason why it's hard to diagnose all these things that Michelle's talking about, the overworking, the inordinate amount of time and energy to present well, even if the final product is great often, but nobody is understanding the, you know, the severe process they're going through and, and also sometimes the underachievement and just pulling out of even trying to connect or contribute in that way because it's just too hard. So there's a lot of waste, uh, wasted potential and a lot of sadness and, and hurt around not being able to manifest and it covers up. So the masking makes it even harder. The compensations make it harder to understand the difficulty, ironically. 
For sure. And on the outside, it looks like everything's just really high, high functioning, like really strong, really like it gives off very, the opposite vibes of what's going on inside. Yeah. And they will feel like their life is completely falling apart and they're just live in the survival mode of treading water. Right. Which is really stressful. So, yeah. So that's why we emphasize in the book, the whole woman, seeing yourself whole, not to underestimate at all the level of difficulty and the frustration but also not to underestimate who you are as a person and all your core traits and your strengths. So to be able to hold on to this whole picture of yourself is what we're trying to present in this book and in our work. So we, it's not like, oh, this is just great to have ADHD and it's a gift, blah, blah. But, you know, it's very difficult. And also, we talk about and also, you know, you, you are a whole person with a lot of strengths and a lot of core traits that that uh, aren't just about your weaknesses, your strengths, or who you are, and that's going to make the difference. I think for a lot of clients who come to see us, this is the first time they've really let themselves really embody that belief that there is more and that they can sort of flesh out the whole picture. And so a lot of our work is instead of like seeing your life as a problem to be solved, really to begin to conceptualize it as sort of a messy canvas that you have agency and you have a say in creating just as much as anyone else does. And right here, the things we know will be helpful in managing some of these differences and challenges that there is, you do need a toolbox. You do need a toolkit. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you also need to have a whole picture of yourself to be able to show up and do that. Right. Otherwise you're just really using strategies out of more hiding and shame. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the perfect to-do list. I'm going to use these apps and have the perfect habit tracker. Well, it's just sort of like a binge purge, like a diet cycle, but with your brain. And it's completely unhelpful. Right. That's why we talk about untangling. Uh, so that you can start to conceive that you have your brain and all the things you might want to use to help yourself with the executive function, including medication, tips, tools, strategies, coaching. And then you have to untangle your brain from the core sense of self. And that's the other part of you that has to learn to sort of walk alongside in two tracks. You know, you do all those things to increase your functioning and to help yourself, but that's not who you are. And you need to move toward a compelling future and meaning and fulfillment. And that's where some of the therapy and overcoming some working on being seen differently, often by your therapist for the first time, and then be able to eventually see yourself through a wider, less distorted lens to move toward a, a, a compelling life for you. So they're really two tracks. And that's what we talked about, untangling your you know, brain and your executive function difficulties from your who you are. And that's, you know, that's our main way of conceiving mm-hmm. it. Well, I think a lot of what the two of you have been talking about right now really illustrates the reason why the fir- one of the first things in your book is the acceptance of that part of you. Like the, the acceptance is like the first part of the journey through working with your ADHD. So I, I really appreciate all this because it totally makes sense why that would be the, the first place to start. And the ongoing place to start. So acceptance is a very active process. It's a lifelong process. These wounds are deep and they keep coming up and being able to, you know, work toward acceptance. is not women say, Oh my God, when you mention the word acceptance, they think that means giving up, giving in, you know, resigning yourself to a life that, you know, is void of, hopes and dreams. So radical acceptance is a much 
different idea is to say this is reality this is true I have to focus on helping myself in that way but I also have to accept myself in a radical way and move along in, in the you know in an important critical way for myself I've seen a lot of neurodivergent talk on like TikTok like people really owning that part of themselves and talking about their late diagnoses what do you what do you think of that do you see a lot more people in your practice recognizing this in themselves like it's that huge. sort of thing I will say there's some studies coming out finding very like over 50% uh, of TikTok videos having misinformation on ADHD. So you've got to be pretty careful what you're consuming in that regard, right? Um, there's misused language. There's myths that are propagated even by like, unfortunately, some healthcare providers, like some of the facts just aren't straight. And the other truth about it is that opening up a conversation to destigmatize and normalize uh, a continuum of different neurotypes being something that is beautiful and helpful in the world um, is a good thing. And also having support and in understanding that I'm not alone in the struggle of it either. And I'm not crazy or broken. I can have a community. I think that's healing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It reminds me of when I started out, believe it or not, there wasn't the internet and people were so isolated and so alone. They had no idea that anybody else, other women felt like this. And so it was when the internet started and they started talking to them, each other and started to go to conferences. It was like that generation, you know, sort of oh, like this now with TikTok. So yeah, it just start. And I think it's really helped break a lot of the stigma. And before women were so alone and, and they, I find them much more willing to advocate for themselves and speak, you know, about their, you know, issues in a, in a much less pathological way, but, you know, they have to find after that opens it up some, you know, experts and help, and, you know, make sure they're getting the right information. But yeah. Yeah. There's less gatekeepers, I guess, at this point. Yeah. That makes sense. Like just more people talking about it is, is a start. I want to ask in your book, you talk about values being a guide to support with your ADHD. Can you say more about that? You know, in, ADHD life, you can really easily go into autopilot. S similarly, uh, there's a lot of changes you might try to make in your life because it seems like the thing to do, right? So how, like, again, shaping myself into someone who's more neurotypical or less ADHD, but that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with who I truly am as a person or what I really care about, right? That's really externally focused approach to change, which we know is not effective in the long term, right? Change when it's effective and lasting comes from a place that's very intrinsic and it's really tied to your own value system, your your deep dreams and longings as a human being. And so similarly, you know, a lot of the research coming out of like Stephen Hayes and, and ACT as a modality really talks about the importance of rooting down in values uh, because your thoughts and feelings are going to come and go, right? But what is true and longstanding about you? And so we found that helping people suss that out. You know, what do I really believe? What do I really want? Where do I want to spend them in terms of the change process, in terms of how I want my life to be different? And where is that line between what I accept and what I continue to work on or get support for and values is a really key component of being effective in that work. 
Yeah, how to have criteria for guiding your life, how to navigate your life. When you have ADHD, you don't have that many filters, so you, you're sort of drawn to a lot of different ways to go, and you're not always valuing your own sense of uh, what you believe, or what you feel. So being rooted in that more and more makes it much more simple to make good decisions for yourself, but that takes a lot of work to block out everybody else and to really dig deeper. I think, too, like, you know, as a clinician and kind of speaking to other clinicians, it's really easy really with any client to get caught in like the problem of the week or the feeling of the moment and lose track of the big picture or the, the fundamental goals and reason you're there and beginning, you know, to, to work back towards what are the values, I think creates a, a thread of continuity in the work and helps keep things more, um, on a level of greater purpose and depth rather than staying in the, the content of, to, of this moment. It's not to say, I don't think you should spend time doing some grounding and processing how you're feeling or whatever happened this week. There's absolutely room for that. But if we do that every single time and never root back in the real why, then I think we can lose some important threads and, and that's more likely to happen with ADHD in the room. Hmm. One, what I like about what you both are saying too, is it, it sort of forces you to like center yourself back and and not worry about other people's needs, wants, all the messages that are coming at you. Like it's back to your core being, which is really powerful. Did you grow up with an emotionally immature, unavailable or selfish parent? Join Lindsay C. Gibson, author of the self-help hit adult children of emotionally immature parents for a six week intensive online course. You'll learn essential skills to reclaim your true self, build emotional resilience, and nurture healthy relationships. Sign up to learn more at newharbinger.com slash Gibson gift and receive a free excerpt bundle from Gibson's books. New Harbinger online courses, expert help for better mental health. I wanted to ask, I really loved in your book, the Declaration of Independence for Women. Can you talk more about that and how that came to be? Yeah, we wanted to convey this idea that's so prevalent with our women clients that you don't forfeit a right. This is the declaration. You don't, you have a right to a fulfilling life, a right to equal relationships and the right to the pursuit of meaning and passion, even though, and even though we say that after each one of the rights, because even though you still have these challenges, even though you're still disorganized, even though there's still tasks to be done, you still have a right to these rights that we mentioned, but you have to claim them. And you have a right to have connections, even though, you know, you might not be perfect in them, even, even though you don't have, you know, all the things done that you think that you should have done. You have the right to pursue your talents, even though it takes time away from what you think is your main job often to fix up the clutter. You know, women don't let themselves like take the time to take a class or to explore a side of themselves that they, that they have longing for. You know, you have a right, even though you still have these challenges to voice your ideas. Um, So, This is the main idea when we talk about these several rights to pursue your hopes and dreams, even though you still have 
these difficulties. And that's why the entangling concept is so important. That's over there. That's the stuff that's always going to be there, even though even when you take a class or even though you, you focus on yourself or you express yourself, the goal can't be to get weight until you're organized, wait until all that ADHD disappears, which is what women come in thinking they have to do. So even though that's all going to be there all the time, you still have the right. And that comes out it affects your power in relationships. It affects the way you communicate. It affects just a lot about the way you let yourself contribute to the world and connect with other people. So that even though peace is really the most important piece of that to me. Again, it sort of came out of this place of like us having coffee and joking about like, you mean I like get to, you know, ask for help or I get to have an ADHD moment. A lot of times what I found is that for people with ADHD, it feels like it's more and more okay. And maybe thanks to social media, right? It's more and more okay to say I have ADHD. It's okay to have it on paper, but it's not okay to actually have it play out in your life. So it's not okay to actually have those ADHD moments. And so this declaration in a way is sort of like, you know, permission to have your challenges and also still make room for that yes and to you get to have challenges and you also like get to be proud of things in your life like you're it doesn't undo um the things you're good at you get to feel strong about things you get to ask for help you don't have to go it alone uh and so it's really a lot of reframing a lot of expanding into greater psychological flexibility around how you see yourself in the world as someone with this invisible uh, difference or disability. Yeah, the whole thrust of the book, I guess, is about expanding, expanding your self-image, expanding into the world, expanding your rights, expanding what you feel you have the right to claim. So the whole book is about getting bigger and not shrinking and hiding and, and getting smaller. You are both mind readers because I was going to ask about expanding. <laughs> Um, why, why is that such a hard concept for women with ADHD to even like fathom? I think there's two parts to it. One is a basic executive functioning issue whereby, you know, there's never really enough time. Um, there's a lot of things that remain undone. Even the small things are difficult to do and quickly pile up due to trouble with activation, task completion, Time management, memory, right? All of these pieces lead to a pretty like long and overwhelming list of things that are undone. And there's this sense that uh, I hear from a lot of folks with ADHD where they feel like they can't take that class, take that time for themselves, you know, ask for something because they just need to do it or they, you know, they need to spend that time getting caught up on all the paperwork, right? trying to perfect and trying to hide and compensate and make it seem, you know, like they, they aren't struggling in a lot of ways. So part of it does, I think, come down to like some challenges around time management and getting overwhelmed with tasks. And that can really, I mean, certainly I think a lot of moms can relate to that, right? Like this idea of there's never enough time for me, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't take that time. The other part of it is more psychological, and if we look at the research around women with ADHD and negative self-talk, women with ADHD and learned helplessness, there's this sense of I can't trust myself to show up in the way that I need and 
things don't go well, and so I stop trying. And over time, I stop trying, stop trying, stop trying. I just become more and more isolated, and I stop taking risks, and life gets smaller and smaller. So there's a psychological, emotional component to it, and there is just some um, very legitimate more like cognitive organizational pieces to why this happens. Like you can see then how a weekend could easily be spent sort of hiding away, trying to like organize all your papers or, you know, get things done behind the curtains or, you know, you might not leave work at a time that you really need to to set that boundary for self-care to have dinner with your family or go for a walk or meet up with a friend or get to bed on time. But you're really like pushing the boundaries because you're trying to, um, deal with ADHD life, right? Whether that's the task side or whether that's the emotional psychological side. Um, and so this idea is really about giving oneself permission to exist fully, to own your time and your space, uh, to begin to self-advocate. It can be scary to ask for, uh, supports, um, accommodations, even, I mean, Sari and I would always find ourselves like, you know, we'd, we'd be meeting up, you know, at a restaurant or something to go over our, our book. And like, we'd be like under the fan with like a speaker blaring over us. And we really had to like push ourselves to say, you know, it's okay for us to ask for a different seat. I think like there's something to about being raised as a girl or woman where you're just programmed to, um, be nice and maintain maintain niceties and connection at all costs. And so there is a gender gender role interplay there. And so part of expanding is uh, speaking up more and asking for what you need, owning your differences, and uh, also saying, well, you know, I might not have the perfect filing system and I still deserve to take care of myself by whatever, you know, taking that class. Well, just interpersonally, I mean, you mentioned the psychological and the cognitive, also interpersonally, you were subject to a lot of people in your family or in your close circle saying, what do you mean you're going to do that? Look, all this stuff, you haven't done this. There's, you are getting messages from other people. How can you do that when you look, you can't even get the, you know, the kids off in the morning or, the, you know, how can you even think about doing that when you haven't done this? And so it's very easy for women to collude with those negative messages. And a lot of the work is about setting boundaries and, communicating in a healthy way about your own needs and claiming your space and but that takes a lot of inner work first to feel like you have a right to to be imperfect you know to you're coming up against a lot of very deeply internalized and idealized gender roles even today even with all the TikTok, even whoever you want to call it, all my girls and my you know uh clients in their 20s and 30s deep down are not that much different than my older clients or how they were when I wrote this first book. They still have this feelings of failure as a woman when the executive function difficulties collide with these gender role expectations. So this is something that's deeply embedded and takes a long time to work through to realize I'm just not that great at those things, but to not devalue all the value you bring to your family in, in uh, you know, emotional labor, all the work you do and all the value you bring. And, and you know, women have to take the risk to, to talk about this and to not back away and not to de-self, uh, de in self-silence themselves and to have these conflicts and these discussions with their partners and their families. 
um, it's very scary because it's such a vulnerable place for women to feel like they're not, you know, doing what other, they're toxically comparing themselves all the time to the neighbors, the other mothers or the other women. How do they do that? How can they do that? And you say, like Michelle says, it takes a long time. Like I accept my ADD, they say, but in real life, they're still not understanding what that means. You know, why can't I do all those things? What's wrong with me? Yeah, the comparison. Yeah, social media makes that worse. That we know for sure. And coming from that place, you know, it it's not a strong place from which to build in change and supportive strategies, right? It's like a one down place. It's not a self like it's not an empowered place. So you really got to think about the big picture here and really helping folks explore what is that nice balance between spending some focused time and energy and resources on managing these challenges, but where does that tip over where it costs me more, where I'm spending so much time on this that I'm actually sort of like, you know, trying to shore up deficiencies more than I'm really trying to support myself and, 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 you know, think of how I can show up. I'm really trying to micromanage myself. And so at some point it's a sunk cost. So what does it cost me not to push, push myself a, a little bit more broadly? Right. To take a leap of faith, you know, that I might come back refreshed and renewed and, you know, and I might, you know, do better at some of these tasks. I might not, but still I'll be building up the other side of the equation. And that's really the only way out of the whole thing is to build up the other side of yourself, even if you constantly, you know, chronically have to deal with all the difficulties of the ADHD. Um, so, yeah, so it's a constant balancing and rebalancing act. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned is just the communicating part about all of this stuff going on internally. Can you talk about some ways that women might shift verbal and nonverbal communication to be more direct and less apologetic? Look, it's hard to talk about ADHD and ADHD challenges. Uh, It's still quite dangerous to do so in the workplace and actually label it. So uh, not only were a a lot of us not really, you know, taught there's no communication skills class growing up right just like geometry instead for some awful reason but i joke but so a lot of people didn't really learn how to talk about how they feel to deal with conflict to uh, express a need very well but there is an extra layer of difficulty here when you're for instance in the workplace and you need something to shift right you can't really work very effectively at the middle cubicle and then there's a lot of things you need to ask for it's not so easy to say, hey, I, I could use some accommodations. Well, why, right? And we know that disclosing a diagnosis in the workplace is still sort of a gamble, um, despite, you know, uh, anti-discrimination laws. Uh, so there is a lot of work and a lot of skill and learning uh, for folks, whether that's in the workplace or even at home. And honestly, I think sometimes home is even harder because we get into such ingrained patterns with folks. So it really comes down to finding the line between being assertive uh, without building walls with our communication. And so on the one side, some folks with ADHD, particularly those with more inattentive type, might be more internal processors, really need more time to think of what they want to say, and they feel a lot of anxiety around finding the right words or organizing their thoughts in a certain way. Women who experience more hyperactivity or 
combined presentation of ADHD might be like the the stereotypical like chatty Kathy, right? Like they just talk, 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 talk. But both of those things end up building walls interpersonally, right? Like not letting people in, either because you're not really communicating and saying what you want or you're talking so much that you can't let in true connection. So from an ADHD informed perspective, like that's something we always consider is where do we, where does a person fall maybe in terms of how ADHD literally shows up in, in what, how words come out of their mouth. And then there's the other pieces of just adaptive direct communication and assertiveness training that most people would benefit from. And particularly women when it comes to setting boundaries, not over qualifying our language, not over explaining Again, when you're someone who has this invisible difference or disability, um, there can be a lot of over-explaining that happens because it's sort of like, I really need to justify why this is hard for me or how I'm struggling so that they don't think less of me uh, so that I can like somehow be good enough. And there's a real shift in energy then when someone comes from a place of, hey, here's what I need, here's what I'm going through. And can we talk about that? Like a more balanced, assertive sense of selfhood. Because women do that. All women do that. You know, the qualifying, the, hey, do you mind if, I'm sorry. But women with ADHD always just over-apologize, try to convince, try to explain. So when you have those two together, it's even a double whammy. Um, you know, I there's a line in our book that a lot of the groups I do really like where it says, if you could just remember this one concept that you're communicating to connect not to just give all the information you have or not to do this or that so if you just can narrow that down like one client said oh, like hundreds of thoughts are trying to get through the door at one time instead of just trying to show everything you know because it's not organized if you just remember to try to disconnect um, and that can you know narrow the field of choice that you have and I know I have a few just simple things that people can try to do instead of at work even instead of having to disclose and declare just to describe your diff start out just by describing what's hard for you everybody knows that hey I have and then asking for what you need um, and couching it in this in the strengths like oh you know sometimes I get so engrossed in my work I forget about the time could you come by and you know come grab me before the meeting or you know I'd love to talk to you but I find it hard to concentrate when all these people are around could we meet next week something that's validating for the other person you know protecting your relationship and also protecting yourself. So all these strategies are things that sometimes you have to work with people with ADHD more directly on, because um, they don't know. We talked about later on that authenticity or that intentional revealing. You don't have to go around telling everybody everything. That's part of being intentional, choosing who to tell what to, when and how and why. Really, you know, people are struggling to be authentic, but that doesn't, there's a difference between that and, you know, being, uh, you know, you can have privacy. You can choose what's safe and how much you want to open. Um, that doesn't mean you're not being authentic. You're just being, you know, healthy self-protection. And that's the hard line sometimes to find. Yeah. And I think one thing um, that I thought of when you were talking about the, the women who apologize too much or have all these reasons for the reason they can't do anything. I literally was watching, I forget what celebrity, an interview yesterday and she said the best advice she ever heard was that no is a full sentence. <laughs> and I was like, like, wait, you don't have to like say why, you just say no. <laughs> it's very hard for women to feel like that's okay to just say what they want and put it out there in a clear way. Women with ADHD especially. 
You know, and again, that takes a long time. I think managing the expectations for women with ADHD at listening is important because these kind of deeper things, they take a longer time. They've been deeply embedded for many years. You're going to have a lot of triggers and wounds and fears or being overlooked, being irrelevant. All these things are going to be your default position when you want to, you're going to want to hold back. And so it takes little small steps as we talk about our books, moving slowly toward the edge of your comfort zone to find a place where you can just take a small step to start building up a new sense of self, a new sense of confidence. But it's a longer road and you need to work with somebody, a therapist or a coach or a group, something that's going to help you move along and start seeing yourself in this way to take more of these steps. Yeah, it's not just automatic, right? Like we're not meant to do these things alone. We're not meant to journey alone. But a lot of us have uh, really internalized the message that somehow we should be able to do more alone. We really are a product of a very individualistic culture in that way, as much as mental health is being embraced more. And so I think another part of this book is a hope we had was that it would instill a little bit of a feeling of community with you know, some of the um, kind of case studies, the little vignettes we have in there and really help women feel with ADHD, feel like it's, it's okay to be on this journey together, not so siloed uh, or alone with it all. Yeah. And I find that's such a powerful thing when women go to one of these groups. Now they have so many more online or in person. But they're forced to hear women telling stories of their, of their struggles that match their own struggles. But they are also forced to hear, wow, I really like her. She's really smart or funny. Or This forces them to rethink uh, their own self-image when they meet real-life women who also struggle but are also, they can see strengths in them more easily. And when that happens, Sarah and I both found it's so powerful. Then the ADHD symptom management becomes so much easier, so much less of a burden then it's really a matter of problem solving. But you can't have that um, when you're fighting with yourself all the time. And so this, yeah, this mirror is so important. Yeah, the mirror is so important. And we wrote in the book, like, uh, you know, like fear is a hungry beast. You have to keep feeding it. You know, the more you hate it, the more just owning, trying to just own your sense of self is much more destructive than living with ADHD. You know that I always tell people if at the end of the day, you're just dealing with ADHD, that's a good place because you can, you know, cope with that. But you can't live with this kind of self-hatred and these internalized self, you know, negative narratives about yourself that are usually very distorted uh, and reinforced. Definitely. And I think talking about community is kind of a good place for us to wrap up because that's so powerful. Do either of you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Uh, we thought, you know, one thing we really loved in reviewing the book for this was uh, our final letter to our readers. There's a closing letter in there. And we just decided we both would share a little bit of it. Um, it's a powerful letter. ADHD hurts in ways that are both hard to understand for people who don't live inside of it day in and day out, and often inexplicable for those who do. It can really get us down, and that's okay. The key is to not stay down, but learn how to step out of that shame-filled space. You don't have to hang back, waiting for ADHD to go away. You don't have to hide yourself away. You don't have to overexert yourself and burn out in the service of passing for neurotypical or making up for, quote, deficiencies. You don't have to sacrifice pleasure or self-care because your ADHD symptoms flared up this week and you don't have to do it all alone. Yeah. And then near the end of that letter, we say 
the good part about this is because ADHD requires doing life differently, it can be a pathway to transformation. If you show up and gently but persistently push the limits of your comfort zone, you no longer have to be of service to the pain that has tangled you in untruths and tethered you to a smaller life. Every day is a chance to live in yourself, into yourself and your bright, bold life a little bit more and a little bit more after that. Message we want to leave you. I love that so much. That's perfect. Thank you both so much for your book, for your work, for this conversation. I know a lot of women are going to be seen and a lot of women are going to be helped by your work. So thank you. I hope so. Thank you. Bye. If you are a woman with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD, you've probably known all your life that you're different. As girls, we learn which behaviors, thinking, learning, and working styles are preferred, which are accepted and tolerated, and which are frowned upon. These preferences are communicated in innumerable ways from media and books to our first grade classroom to conversations with our classmates and parents. Over the course of a lifetime, women with ADHD learn through various channels that the way they think, work, speak, relate, and act does not match up with the preferred way of being in the world. In short, they learn that difference is bad, and since these women know they are different, they learn they are bad. It's time for a change. A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD is the first guided workbook for women with ADHD designed to break the cycle of negative self-talk and shame-based narratives that stem from the common and limiting belief that brain differences are character flaws. In this unique guide, you'll find a groundbreaking approach that blends traditional ADHD treatment with contemporary treatment methods such as acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, to help you untangle yourself from the beliefs that have kept you from reaching your potential in life. If you're ready to develop a strong, bold, and confident sense of self, embrace your unique brain-based differences, and cultivate your individual strengths, this step-by-step workbook will help you find the way. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, free client resources, free eBooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our quick tips for therapists, email program, and more. Visit newharbinger.com slash clinicians club for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider. 